0: Hi and welcome to the Life 2.0 Podcast, a podcast about composing a life in times of accelerated change. My name is Bea Spadaccini, and I will be your host. This week we will meet Lindsay Parsons, who is now a health coach in Tucson, Arizona. Lindsay's life journey, however, started as a linguist. She graduated in Romance Linguistics, studied French, Italian, and Spanish, and lived abroad in various countries and continents. Lindsay taught in English in Costa Rica, pursued a doctor of education degree in Brisbane, Australia, and even co-founded a children's nutrition advocacy nonprofit in the Washington DC area. But one day, Lindsay and her husband Doug, by now parents to two boys, decided to go on a mini retreat to plan what they wanted their life to look like one year down the road. Lindsay, welcome to the Life 2.0 podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking our podcast guests to think about the verb to compose and what does this mean to you as an individual? How do you make sense of this action verb in terms of your own life's journey?
1: To compose a life for me is, is about just making purposeful decisions about your quality of life over things like fear of lack of money or conventional wisdom or the paths that other people have taken you know there comes a point in your life where you're like you know what if i don't have a lot of money and i can't do some things that's okay having my freedom, being able to do what I enjoy, like that's way more important than those other things.
0: I know at some point in your life, you got a degree in education. So what was your vision when you pursued your education degree in Australia? What did you want to do with it? And was this part of your overall vision or your composition of a life?
1: I had studied abroad during my college career and then was actually working as a study abroad advisor at the University of Georgia. And that was something that I had thought about even prior to graduating. My undergrad was in French literature and I had looked at what the possible careers were and teaching French was pretty much one of the few, but being a study abroad advisor was another that I could eventually work towards. But then when it came to the doctorate, partly it was because i wanted to advance in my career so that was one of the reasons but the other reason was really that i wanted to live abroad again and and living abroad is so much different than taking a short trip it's really you know getting to know the people and be you know assimilating into the culture and such and i wanted that experience again so To some extent, doing the degree was just a means to the end of living in Australia because, you know, it's not easy to get into and live in another country for an extended period of time unless you're doing something legitimate and work permits are not easy to come by.
0: After spending three and a half years in Brisbane, Australia, and raising her first son there for the first years of his life, Lindsay and her husband Doug returned to the U.S. and moved to Tallahassee, Florida, where Doug's family lives. Eventually, they made it to the D.C. area, which is where I had the pleasure to meet Lindsay. I want to share with the listeners how I met you because I met you through Real Food for Kids Montgomery, which is a local advocacy organization that works with public schools to improve lunches and improve nutrition in the public school. And myself being a mom as well, I was very interested in that particular organization. That's how I think I came to one of your events. And that's how I First met you, and then got to follow the organization. How did you end up then from Tallahassee to the D.C. area, and then to starting up this advocacy organization?
1: When we came to D.C., I had actually intended to try and find a job and study abroad, and I was applying for jobs. But you know, I get into trouble when I'm not busy, and I got, I managed to found a nonprofit organization in my spare time. So. I actually, uh, I sent a letter that uh, to the school board and then posted it to a listserv. And then another mom, Karen Devitt, saw it and she contacted me, said, let's get together for coffee. And then, you know, we invited all the friends we had to a, a meeting around my dinner table. And then, you know, it expanded and it expanded and then it became a part-time job for each of us.
0: Wait, Lindsay, you said... You sent a letter to the school board. So what were you asking the school board?
1: Well, I was just sort of saying I, th- I felt they were going in the wrong direction by building a large central facility to cook food at. I've since changed my position on that. But I, I, what I was trying to get at was they should be doing more scratch cooking and doing it at the school level. But you can do scratch cooking at central facilities, too. You have to have some equipment at school level as well. So I think it's, it's a combination. But that's what I was asking.
0: Were you already interested in nutrition and health, or that was just really out of concern for your own children?
1: I've been interested in nutrition and health for most of my life. I, I think the first, my first interest was peaked somewhere around age 16 when our driving instructor got got us thinking about it. Um, my friend and I, and we, you know, started doing bike tours, and we were swimming, and we were trying to eat healthy, although we had no idea what eating healthy was back then. And I I even wrote a letter to the editor of the paper of my high school about the unhealthy food that they served. Hmm.
0: Okay. So there's the dot that connects to your own experience as a a young woman and your own school. And then all of a sudden looking at probably the school lunches. When she co-founded Real Food for Kids Montgomery, Lindsay worked as a volunteer. To make ends meet and stay true to her original career, she eventually took a 30-hour-per-week program coordinator job at Georgetown University, but gradually she found herself more and more involved in the nonprofit she had created. She struggled with the idea of being tied down to an office and having to miss out on meetings related to the work of her advocacy organization. Eventually, she decided she had to let go of her part-time job and commit fully to the nonprofit she had created, which also meant advocating with the board to get paid a minimum salary.
1: Well, that was a real purposeful choice. So actually, I went on vacation to the Bahamas with my family. And while I was sitting there at the side of the pool that overlooked this gorgeous beach, and I had my computer open, and was working on stuff for Real Food for Kids, I thought, this is what I can, I have that freedom. I can work from anywhere. I can take any amount of, quote, vacation I want, as long as I get stuff done while I'm there. Like, this is the life I want. And then I got back to Georgetown, and it was summer, and so there's no students there. My boss was away for, like, a month. They were doing work in the basement of the, of the hall that I worked in. So there was, it was like a cloud. Everywhere. It wasn't, it didn't even feel safe to be there because of what they were, you know, all of this, you know, the cloud of chemicals in the air. And I was, I was sitting in this basement and it was freezing. I had to have a heater on because of the air conditioning. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't even need to be in this room. There's nobody calling, there's nobody coming in and there's not even very much work. Like it was, it was, it felt sort of pointless to be there. And it also felt like I was in jail and I thought, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this anymore. I need to plan my, my exit from this. And so I basically put together, I figured out how I could put together one year salary for me as a full-time executive director of the organization. And I sold my partner on it. I said, listen, it's going one of two ways. Either I'm going to the board and I'm not going to do this anymore, or I'm going to be full-time, but, but, but I can't do this part-time anymore because I didn't, it just wasn't, I wasn't living my values. I felt like I was throwing my time away.
0: Wow. That takes courage. And also because you didn't know what the board would say, but you found a way to raise the money as well to, to cover a full-time person there.
1: We we weren't too worried about the board, but, but it was more about the money. I knew I had one year's money. And after that, I had no idea. But I thought I'd rather have one year of happily doing what I want to be doing than sit here anymore in this air-conditioned box, prison, imprisoned in this office that I
0: don't want to be in. Do you consider that a real turning point? Is like, that's it, I'm done.
1: It really was. I mean, and it worked out. I mean, fortunately, I was able to continue on as a full-time executive director. I started in 2015, left mid-2018. So three and a half years, I was able to continue to, to raise a salary and then even build it. So um, it was a turning point in being courageous about, you know, I loved my other jobs. But at the same time, this one I had created myself and it was my baby. And I thought I want to devote myself full time to this. I don't want to be spending, you know, putting three quarters of my time and attention into a job I'm not interested in.
0: So I remember seeing lots of emails coming in from you. So I know you were working a lot in your in this job anyways. So how did you balance that with the family and other commitments? What were the gains that you had
1: Yeah, well, the main gain was that I could be at all the meetings I wanted to be at. So there were a lot of things that happened during the workday. And I kept taking unpaid leave to go to those meetings. So I'd leave Georgetown to go to the meeting for real food for kids. And I just couldn't fully do the job the way it needed to be done when I was stuck at an office in downtown D.C. So. That was one big gain. Obviously, the other gain was that instead of spending all my evening hours doing real food for kids stuff, I was able to then say, now that this is my full-time job, it will happen during normal work hours other than the occasional you know, evening or weekend meeting. So that allowed me to be much more present for my family in the evenings. Was your family supportive of you making this
0: huge career uh, shift and in some ways also taking the risk? <sighs> I
1: think, yes, is my recollection. I don't, I don't remember there being a lot of objection to it. And the main reason was because at the time my husband had a well-paying job, and so we, we felt relatively safe making that choice, even if I couldn't put together the salary for the year after
0: after five years at Real Food for Kids in Montgomery, Lindsay grew tired of the fundraising aspect of running a nonprofit. Her co-founder, Karen, had moved on, and as the only employee, Lindsay had the primary responsibility to raise funds.
1: It was a lot for one person to do. I mean, we had a board, of course, that was helpful, but just sort of that endless treadmill of trying to raise the money to do the job was wearing on me, and it was, it was very stressful.
0: Her husband Doug was also eager to leave the D.C. area and settle down in a less hectic place that had more of an outdoor life. So they started to put their heads together and think about options and what was important to each one of them. But their children, at the time seven and a half and twelve years old, were settled and did not immediately take to the idea of moving to a new place and leaving their home and friends behind. This was especially hard for their 12-year-old son.
1: My husband and I, you know, once my son gave us the go-ahead, we were going to go to Cleveland. Well, Lake Erie, my parents have a place on Lake Erie and a house in Cleveland for a week. And I said, let's take a couple days and go into their house in Cleveland Heights by ourselves and have a retreat and talk about what we want our life to look like a year from now. Cause you want to move, but this can't happen. You know, we've got kids now we've, you're, he was a podcaster at the time and, and that was a new thing for him. So there was not a lot of money coming in on his end. So it was not something we could just jump into financially by any stretch. So, we sat down and had this two day retreat, and we would spend time talking about and talking about what we wanted our life to look like like the kind of place we wanted to live in, the kinds of things we wanted to do, the way we wanted to spend our days. And then we would go back and spend time researching or coming up with ideas, and then come back together and, and talk about it again. And so, at the end of that weekend, I had sort of set the plan in place that I was going to become a health coach, which is a profession I hadn't heard of prior to working at Real Food for Kids Montgomery, but there were a lot of health coaches in our membership who who I knew, and so it had gotten me thinking about that. And so I started doing research on programs, and then we also started talking about which places that we would consider, and Tucson was not actually on the plate at that time. We were looking at California and Florida, but every time I started getting deeper into talking about Florida, where my husband is actually from, he would kind of pull back and I finally said, listen, you're not actually really wanting to move to Florida, right? And then we looked at California and it was just so expensive. We couldn't afford a home in any city we wanted to live in in California. And then he brought up Tucson and that was obviously a reasonable a reasonable location given all the things he wanted the mountains or the ocean. And he wanted we both wanted warm weather. and I just didn't want the weather to be too too hot. But hot, I could live with a lot more than cold. And we wanted you know, a reasonable-sized city.
0: Hmm. You both sat down in that retreat and you said to each other, what do we want our life to look like? And it sounds like some of it was related to the weather, being able to have access to the outdoors, maybe a more affordable place to live, a reasonable city size? Were you both looking to work from home? What about your kids in the school? What about the kind of environment that you could offer them? What were you looking at?
1: So for my husband, it was really important that the kids have a lot more out- outdoor o- opportunities. He really didn't like the fact that during most of the year in DC, we were sort of stuck inside because we didn't do a lot of cold weather activities like skiing. We just didn't have the money to take the kids skiing. And so not very close to any natural areas. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for them to be outside. And that was really what he valued growing up. For me, the main important thing was that I could work from home because even when I worked only a couple days a week from the office for real food for kids, those were the days I dreaded. I literally went to bed thinking, oh, and the next morning got up thinking, oh, and I don't know why, but I just hate going into an office. And it was hard to explain, but part of it, I guess, is just being in an atmosphere. Somebody else, you know, sets with their air conditioning and being cold and having to sit at a desk chair. I like to sit in my couch. Like that's where I'm comfortable and I don't need to leave the house to do my work.
0: And maybe you like, you know, to wear whatever yoga pants or something comfortable. You don't have to dress up to go out at a meeting or something.
1: You know, I honestly, I didn't have to dress up too much to go sit by myself with my (laughs) interns in the office, but then I don't mind dressing up every now and then. So it's much more just about my physical comfort. I just, I don't like sitting at desk chairs. I've never liked sitting at desks.
0: Lindsay and her family eventually settled in Tucson, Arizona and made the move in the summer of 2018. Her husband, Doug, is a professional podcaster and has a show on climate change called America Adapts. You can find it where you download your podcast. Lindsay's health coaching business seems to be doing very well.
1: My business is called High Desert Health, and I do health coaching, especially around sustainable weight loss and also improving Health conditions naturally, with a focus on autoimmune and digestive issues, thyroid issues, that kind of thing. So, I, I typically work with women, and we do a usually a 90 day coaching program and try and set them on the path to the kinds of sustainable changes that will lead to weight loss. That won't, you know, it's not about dieting where it comes right back. It's much more about can you live with this change for the rest of your life? Okay, now that's, this will help you to lose weight and to keep it off.
0: As an additional source of income, Lindsay and Doug Airbnb their guest house, which has a separate entrance. It is an additional source of income and is part of composing a creative lifestyle. One of the things Lindsay and her family have struggled with, like many other Americans who want to compose their own lives and break free from the nine to five routine, is affordable health care. So I wanted to ask you something which probably a lot of the listeners also think about because we live in a country that espouses entrepreneurship and business ideals, yet It seems pretty hard for people to have a decent and affordable health insurance and health care when we do not work for a company or for someone else. So what do you and your family do about health insurance and how expensive is it? And what are some of the compromises you need to make to ensure that you and the kids and your husband have decent health coverage?
1: Well, that is really one of the biggest challenges. And it got especially challenging when they eliminated the cost sharing subsidies uh, under the Trump administration because... Prior to that, when we had a health plan, we had both a subsidy and we had no deductible, and now we have a ridiculously huge deductible. The plan we selected when we moved here, and it was just for six months, so I sort of took a chance, is the lowest cost plan that you can get, and we have a big subsidy. So our, our insurance bill is small, $271 a month, but it pays for nothing until the individual deductible of $6,500 or family of $13,000. Yeah. So it's absurd. I mean, basically it covers nothing other than your one visit a year. Of course, that's an impossible dream. We have two young boys who get in accidents and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's my son has a health issue right now and I'm choosing not to get it treated until the new year and we'll, we'll select a better plan next year that covers more.
0: It's so ironic that we live in a country where entrepreneurship is valued and yet it's really hard because we risk our own health
1: and the health of our loved ones. And, and honestly, you know, the huge expansion of the gig economy and all of these these entrepreneurs that have happened in the last few years is because of Obamacare. If it hadn't been for that, so many people would still be stuck in their nine to fives. But this freedom is possible because that even exists. And it's not great right now, but eventually they'll they'll get it right. Eventually they'll fix it.
0: So yes, healthcare is a concern for many, and it may force people like Lindsay and others to make hard choices about whether to seek treatment or to delay it to a time when there is better coverage. Hopefully, as Lindsay says, our legislators will eventually fix health care and in the process really help those who want to strike out on their own. But in the meantime, I asked Lindsay what are some of the lessons she learned while composing a life in times of accelerated change? You had said to me when we had a um, pre-recording chat something about your kids as well like learning to that not everything is available at every wish they have that that builds character can you can you share a little bit how does this
1: type of experience also builds character for kids? I think that having a period of time in which you can say to your kids, I'm sorry, you can't have that because we can't afford it is is character building. I mean, fundamentally, I don't feel bad about saying no to my kids because we can't afford it. I feel like that's a good thing. And I, I, you know, that may be a strange thing because obviously people who grow up in severe poverty where they can't actually feed their kids. Now that's not, that's a whole different level of poverty, right? You know, but no, we can't. We can't get you these nicer pair of shoes. We can only get you these these lesser pair of shoes. Or no, we can't afford to go out to dinner anymore. Like those are for me. Those are very reasonable nos, and they build character in a child. And I think a child who's brought up in those circumstances is much more likely to work hard to get what they want.
0: What about them learning to live a life that has other values besides making money and getting the job and the pension for life, which? very few jobs nowadays even offer.
1: I'm not sure they're watching that closely yet, but at some point they may reflect back on what we did and say, oh, you did make some real choices around your quality of life. Do you have
0: any advice to some of the listeners who also want to compose a life for themselves, but are either afraid to take the risk or have no idea where to start from, since you have done many changes and shifts in your life, um, especially this last one, but also before when you took on Real Food um, Kids Montgomery for, as executive director. Basically, you started your own nonprofit together with uh, a colleague. So what? what's some of your advice What are that people are thinking about it, but they hesitate?
1: Well, I would say for younger people who are just entering the workforce and are yet tired of the nine to five, I'd say save money. Just be smart, put away for retirement, but also put away for, you know, like they say, those six months of living expenses. And think it's six months of living expenses, like your full salary, because if you're unemployed, it might actually be two years. Or if you're developing a business, sometimes they say you don't make a profit until five years in. So, so think about it in terms of unemployment lasts six months, and then you've got to cover your expenses unless you want to go get some kind of, you know, fill in the blank job just to just to get by. Um, the other thing is just don't live extravagantly because, you know, you ne- that can of disappeared in an instant. You know, you just never know when that's going to go away. The other issue or the other piece of advice is just that it might seem impossible, and I certainly thought it was impossible to live without my husband's big salary. It turns out that a lot of costs will go down as your income decreases. So, for example, taxes. Like we barely pay taxes because we barely make any money. And then, you know, the 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 Obamacare subsidies. Like now we get a huge subsidy for our health insurance. So, you know, when there's scholarships and there's discounts that you can access, as long as you're not ashamed of the fact that you're not, you know, terribly upwardly mobile at that point in your life. That happens when you're starting a business, so just not being ashamed of of taking help where you can get it. And then I guess the last piece is just not think you can't live without certain things. Like you think, "Oh well, I can't live without going out to dinner once a week or I can't live without, you know, my cable or whatever it might be, but you actually can live. And I mean, I was I'm a foodie. I love my dinners out. But you know, I just came to appreciate a quiet night at home and watching Netflix with my husband, and uh, you know, maybe we'd have a little date at the table, put the you know feed the kids first, and then, put out the candles. And we just, we made it work. And and you can live without a lot of things that you think you can't live without in exchange for you know freedom and less stress.
0: So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Uh, Lindsay, we really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch. We will have to catch up with you in a few years and see how the composing the life experiment is going and seeing where it's taking you in your next adventure.
1: Okay, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Remember to follow us on Twitter at Life 2.0 Pod. That is Life, the number 2.0 Pod. Like us also on Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast via Apple iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.